You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. And if you would, please grab your Bible and turn to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. In today's text, we'll be looking at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, and the next Sunday we'll come back and pick up at verse 6 and work our way through verse 11. I'd just like to offer a brief prayer as you find your place and ask for God's grace. Father, we come to you, the ancient of days, well-chosen song for such a time as this. I'm no prophet, but Lord, I know, because I know the sinful proclivities of my own heart, that there are saints in this room Fearful, questioning, trembling, angry. Lord, if many of us are honest, we're scared. Help our hearts to rise to the truth that our minds know. We know you are the Ancient of Days. Lord, help us to feel rightly what we rightly know. That we may leave singing the songs of Zion, singing praises to the Lamb, being a people marked by humility. Not a humility that lacks conviction, not a humility that lacks the courage to say what is good is good and what is evil is evil. But humility that is born out of a deep-seated trust in the fact that we serve the one who declares the end from the beginning. So come, Holy Spirit, and do a humbling work among your people. In an age of avarice and hubris and self-promotion and nihilism and arrogance, God, may we be indeed salt and light. In essence, Holy Spirit, come and give us the aroma of Christ. And it's in his name we pray and plead with you to do this work. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll be preaching again next Sunday, but today as we look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, the title of today's message is Exhortations for Shepherds and Sheep. Exhortations for Shepherds and Sheep. So I unashamedly affirm and without reservation affirm the authority, the inerrancy, the infallibility, the clarity and the sufficiency of God's Word. I think that the grand design from Genesis to Revelation is the person and work of Jesus Christ, whether it be by Revelation as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, or by type or by shadow, everywhere in some measure to greater or lesser degrees, wherever you may find yourself in Scripture, you will find Jesus Christ. So I could easily stand here and preach sufficiently 
from Leviticus, sufficiently from Genesis, Psalm 22, where we hear the cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We could preach from Matthew, we could preach from Revelation, and land ultimately at the glory of Christ. But I say that because I want to qualify what I'm about to say, and that is I think, in my opinion, there is a book that is uniquely suited even though all the scripture is sufficient, there is one that is uniquely suited for such a time as this. Historically, socially, geopolitically, all the above, and I would argue that that book that God is intending to build faith in us is First Peter. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at First Peter 5, but this morning we're going to get a flyover. Why do I say that First Peter is uniquely suited for such a time as this. Well, last Sunday, many of us walked out with that beautiful mixture of courage and conviction because God used Pastor Jason to remind us to be salt and light. Were you encouraged last Sunday? Amen. I would argue that if you want to take a step further and say, how do I live out being salt and light? I would argue that First Peter is an exegesis or an extrapolation of that statement. How do I be salt and light? And Peter comes along and says, well, let me help you. Peter is writing to a suffering people. Just go to 1 Peter 1. We're going to take a flyover and then we'll land at chapter 5. 1 Peter 1, he says, Peter, who is he writing to? the elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia. I think Peter's writing just before, at the threshold, you can hear the rumblings of the persecution of Nero. I don't know that, that the full-blown genocide of Nero has happened yet, but I think it's really close. But Peter is writing to a people that are spread abroad. He's writing to Christians. Some are being martyred for their faith, and some in the greatest, a huge mass of land that he's writing to. Some of them are not losing their lives, but they feel very disjointed in a world that is marked by persecution, indifference, isolation, constant fear and uncertainty, spiritual warfare. I, I fit, but I don't fit. Just notice the paradox of elect exile. It's one thing to be in exile, not a lot of hope there, but to be an elect exile, what a beautiful paradox of the Christian life. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, exiled but predestined and loved and kept. Do you see the relevancy of First Peter for how many of us feel? today. And beloved, quite honestly, we could have preached this sermon a year ago and it would have been the same. When the Holy Spirit changes your heart, there is a battle that rages that says, I am in this world, but I am not of this world. I want to bless my neighbor, but I've got one eye on eternity. Peter captures that in that pregnant little statement, elect exiles. Exiles. 
he is telling them how to live as salt and light. And if you just fly over 1 Peter, he talks very practically about how do we live as Christians in a suffering-filled world and in an anxious world at uncertain times with uncertain leaders and uncertain culture, and we feel alone. How do we live in light of civil government? How do we live in light of the family unit? How do we live as the church? Peter gets really, really practical. And I think it's really important that we realize he's pushing us out, like Jason said. He's pushing us and saying, don't run from these things, but go, be. You're in elect exile. I get it. You're not home yet. But here's how you function in a way that brings glory to God in a fallen world. But look at chapter 1, verse 6. Peter's not naive. Peter knows what many of us feel like on Pilgrim's Progress to the Celestial City in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What makes the people of God groan in this world? Take your pick. Their own indwelling sin, being sinned against, bodies that decay and are prone to corruption, uncertainty in the land, you name it. Peter knows. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, gosh, he sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? It's almost as if he was discipled by him. Look what he says. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Sovereignty over suffering. Amen. Look at chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Probably one of the most explicit statements. And we'll get into our text hereafter. Chapter 4, four, verse 12, he says, Beloved, so just because you're feeling the pinch of being an elect exile in a world that's home but not quite home and a culture that I, I love but I'm not in love with and I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing, I'm salt and light, I'm, I'm a citizen of this kingdom and yet I'm a citizen of that kingdom. He says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. We're going to talk about humility today because it's baked into our text. But I looked at that and that probably sealed the deal for me. So all week I'm looking at all of 1 Peter running into chapter 5. And chapter 5 today and especially next Sunday he's going to talk about humility but he's been talking about suffering, 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 fiery trial. And I'm going, how do you cognitively move from talking about suffering? And then wouldn't you say, in light of all this suffering and exilic existence, wouldn't you think the admonition would be stand firm? Which he does say later. Wouldn't it be be courageous? Wouldn't it be like, I would expect that. 
But he goes on for the next two Sundays and says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I think, why do I need to be reminded to be humble? Because this hit me about yesterday. I was praying. I'm like, Lord, get this text in my heart. Please. I, I can't preach what I don't know, what I don't feel. And I, this hit me. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. To at home in this world, if I get too earthy, get too comfortable in my little routines, in my little earthy things that I do that just feel so good, and then trial comes, uncertainty comes, fear comes, I do that. I act as if something strange were happening, which can lead to a lack of humility. It can lead to entitlement and bitterness and anger to say, why are you doing this to me? I did everything right. And then I realized that's how pagans talk. I don't live in a quid pro quo relationship with God He says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, and it will come, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter calls them elect exiles because they, like the church today, live in a world in which they were in but not of. In today's passage, in light of all these things, this call to suffering in this world, Peter begins chapter 5 with the word, so. So the reason we took way too much time to give a flyover of 1 Peter is because if I jump in at verse 1, I know you guys, you're very astute. You're going to go, ah, the first word is so. That's like, therefore, you get it back up. I know. So let's back up to verse 19, chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, while engaging, while being salty. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator in a world that increasingly does not feel like home. The main point that I want to drive toward in our remaining time is this. A suffering church is to be marked by Christ-centered humility. A suffering church is to be marked by Christ-centered humility. That doesn't mean that we check our convictions at the door. Not at all. But Peter is striving to help us not do maybe what he did in the garden where he drew a sword and Jesus has put that down. My kingdom is not of this world, Peter. Number one, Peter, his exhortation contains three elements, and the first of that is a specific group. A specific group. He says, so, suffering Christians, lonely Christians, exiled Christians, worried, fearful Christians... So, I exhort the elders among you. Interesting. 
The overarching teaching of the New Testament is that Christ's church is to be led by biblically qualified men. We see that in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1. And some of those men are set aside specifically for preaching and teaching. Scripture uses various words to describe the leaders in the church. Elder, presbyteros, overseer, episkopos, pastor or shepherd, that verb of poimain, to shepherd people. It's functionally all the same. What are they to do? According to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, they are to exercise oversight, to lead, to guide, to correct, to equip, to serve, to protect, and to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word. Fair enough. But I look at the text and I say, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. And he goes on and loops them in, in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, elders and laity alike. All of you clothe yourselves in humility. And so I'm asking myself, as a pastor, as an elder, why are you exhorting me to humility when the church is suffering and scared and when I myself am prone to fear? So I just lingered on that. I thought, okay, let's not, let's not complicate this. Many pastors in our nation right now we're saying, I never thought I would face these things in ministry in my lifetime. Many are saying, I'm getting email after email asking for direction and what to do, and I'm scared to death because if I'm honest, what I want to say is, I don't know. Peter knows. Peter, of all people, knows what fear can do. He knows that elders at a time of suffering, contextually suffering, persecution, formal governmental persecution, and just suffering in a lost world, Peter knows that they might be tempted to abandon their calling, preach a softer message, just tone it down, right? Or they might be tempted to become angry and fearful, they might lose sight of who's truly in charge. And that's why Peter is coming alongside as an elder, as a fallible man who denied Christ and yet was restored in the face of fear. He front loads his exhortation. Look at what he says. I exhort the elders among you. Okay? How are you going to exhort us to do something at a time like this? as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. That's like winding up as far as you can so you could just hurl the ball. And what's the ball? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So at a time of suffering and a time of uncertainty for elect exiles, the first thing that we see here, Peter says, I'm talking to the elders among you. Shepherd the flock of God. Stand firm. Play the man. 
And at this point, you might say, well, if I had your experience, Peter, if I had your testimony, if I had walked with Christ, maybe I'd feel the same way too. That's not fair, Peter. And I stopped myself right there, and immediately my mind snapped to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are not, brothers, at a disadvantage to Peter. He says, you're a fellow partaker of these things. We have seen the glory of Christ with the eyes of faith when the Holy Spirit came to dead sinners and rebels against God and said, live, and we saw the glory of of Christ. We are men under conviction, and we will preach him. Him we proclaim, because it is a Christ whom we have seen by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we are not at a disadvantage to Peter. And we are to do this humbly. He addresses a specific group, and number two, he issues a sober calling. A sober calling. Okay, in light of all this gospel truth, what do you want us to do, Peter? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That means that they're responsible for a group of people whom they know. It's a great argument for church membership. But what, what, what do we not? Sometimes to understand a text, you have to go the via negationes, the way of negation. Let me tell you what it's not so that we see what it is. What is he not saying? He says, you know, when the sheep are suffering and there's a lot of uncertainty and some of them are being physically persecuted and some of them are being verbally persecuted and we don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring from the higher-ups and from the culture and this and that, you know what they really need is a very aloof superstar pastor that's not in the pen with dirty boots. They need, you know, just to live in an ivory tower and come down and preach a sermon from time to time and then vaporize and go, no, no, he says, Shepherd the flock of God whom you know. You're in the pen with them. You've got wool on your clothes and mud on your boots because you're with them. This is not a time for celebrity servants. It's an oxymoron. Real-life pastors in the flesh, imperfect men who love Jesus and love his people. That's the sober calling that Peter calls them to. And how do they do that? How does Christ-centered humility move them to shepherd the flock of God in times of uncertainty? Verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not under compulsion. That word literally means not being forced. You don't want hirelings at a time like this, just doing it for a paycheck. I'm just doing it because that's what my daddy did. I'm doing it because, you know, I'm, I'm part of the clergy hierarchy and I'm just trying to get to retirement. No, no, no. You want men who say, I'm scared out of my mind, but I'll go because I've seen what Isaiah saw. Here I am, send me. And I look at that and I go, you just told us for four chapters about how we're going to suffer. What will motivate men to aspire for the calling of an elder, as it says in 1 Timothy 3? And the answer comes back and resounds from the halls of heaven, grace, grace, the goodness of God in Christ. That's all the motivation you need. He's worth it. 
Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, verse 2, but eagerly. In 1 Timothy 5, we realize that there are some elders that are set aside to be paid and supported by the church for the work of preaching and teaching and prayer. That's not what he's talking about here. He's referring to dishonest gain or those that are eager to profit dishonestly. Let me just say it plainly. What is one of, if not the last things the church needs right now in this country? What is one of the last things they need at a time where uncertainty and fear and all kinds of questions are swirling? The last thing they need is the prosperity gospel. How much sense, logical cohesion, does your best life now make today? It is worth nothing compared to what I see in Scripture. And it is absolutely foreign to it. It is antithetical to what I see Peter saying. He says, you're elect exiles. If it's your best life now, what hope do you have? He says, we're not home yet, guys. And you're going to feel that, but it's okay. Because as I reminded you in chapter 1, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Go be salt and light. And when it's time, the Lord will take you home. And you will be home. Verse 3. How else do we do this, Peter? How are we called to humbly shepherd suffering saints at a time of uncertainty? In verse 3, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. The word domineering literally means to bring someone under your power or subdue or master them. What is Peter saying? He says, the last thing suffering, fearful saints need in times of uncertainty, when they feel their exilic status at a fevered pitch, the last thing they need is a bully for a shepherd. Courageous for the gospel? Yes. Willing to take a punch for Jesus? Yes. A bully to the sheep? Disqualified. And you look at that and say, well, what motivation are we going to get for all that? How do you move hearts, not just heads? to obey that call. What he says in verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, we're, we're not the chief shepherd, we are under shepherds. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter's exhortation contains a specific group, a sober calling, and number three, a sweeping principle. A sweeping principle. Verse 5, so if you look back in 1 Peter in the letter, there's a thing called a household code, meaning he's addressing, you know, um, the church as a whole and wives and husbands, and that's like a household code. He's saying, here's how you're salt and light in regard to civil government, and here's how you're salt and light in the church, and here's how you're salt and light with other Christians and in the home. He's going back to that household code, and he's talking to everybody. 
everybody, sweeping principle. He says in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And in some translations, it says young men are to be subject to the elders. Now, what, what what is he talking about here? One commentator took a stab at it and said, it may be that the young are sometimes overzealous and prone to bark at authority. Maybe that's what he means. And there is a call in Hebrews 13, 17 to obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your soul. But as I'm meeting with the college students today, I also just want to kind of flip that around and say, but how many revivals, how many evangelistic movements, how many reformations come at the hands of young men and women who put down their phones and get on their knees and cry out to God? If you think, are you, are you telling us we should do that? Yes. But he goes on. Clothe yourselves, all of you, young and old, elder or not, doesn't matter. All of you Christians feeling like exiles in the world but not of the world, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Interesting. The word clothing there, I mean, it's a, it's a word picture of putting on a garment. It says, let humility be the garment that you have, young to old, young to young, old to old, just all believers be marked by a humility. Remember what he said in 1 Peter 3, 15? We, we love this as a proof text for apologetics, don't we? Be ready at all times to give an answer to those who ask you for the hope that you have. Context, suffering in a foreign culture. How, what, will, what, what would provoke a non-Christian person to come up to me and say, what's up with you? <laughs> Moreover, and this isn't to poke you in the eye, but to convict us, piggybacking off of Jason's conviction from last week, when's the last time a non-Christian came to you and said, give me a reason for the hope that you have? That's what they call an evangelistic softball. I think that happens when they look and see, not clenched fist, clenched hands, how dare, I can't believe this is happening to me. No, when we go back and say, beloved, don't think it's strange when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. Is this something weird were happening to you? This is not truly your home, and moreover, your sovereign God is working all things together for good. Romans 8.28 still applies. So be humble with one another, be that city on the hill, be that salt and light, so that maybe a culture that seems to be losing its mind might, might come to you at your cubicle or over the fence in the yard, or maybe even here on a Sunday morning and say, in a world where darkness reigns and where the love of many is growing cold, where does this love and humility and preference for one another come from? You're not even the same, you're so different. Is this a social club? Is this a special interest group? Because you look different. I don't get it. And we can say what? <laughs> Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the King of Kings. Beloved, we are elect exiles in this world. And I have no doubt that many of us this morning are feeling it maybe more poignantly than we ever have in our lives. 
And I think C.S. Lewis captured it well. And you think, well, that's not fair. Everyone, if you want to make a point, you quote Lewis, Augustine, or Spurgeon. My grandma says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I'm going to give you Lewis. I think he captures our exilic status very well when he says this, quote, at present, we are on the outside of the world. We are on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see, but... All of the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be this way. And someday, God willing, we shall get in. End quote. Beloved, we're called to be salt and light. We're called to clothe ourselves with humility. Maybe feeling like an elect exile a little more deeply might be the medicine that God has prescribed that that might be borne out in our lives. Because Lord knows, I get earthy really quick. Just a little extra money, a good cup of coffee, and good health, and my prayer life plummets. And if he really is sovereignly working uh, to make us into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29, maybe this is a really unique season that feeling like an elect exile might just lead to humble praise and love and salty lives. Amen? So I leave you with three exhortations. In light of today's text, number one, regularly pray for your elders. Regularly pray for your elders. At a time of uncertainty, Peter immediately goes toward those who are called to shepherd the flock of God. Pray that we would be courageous for the gospel. Pray that we would main, remain with strong fidelity to the authority of the word of God, that the fear of man would not cause us to blunt the edge of the message. Pray that we would not be fearful Pray that the fear of man would not cause us to forget the goodness of God. Pray that we would not be bitter. Pray that we would not kick against the goads and say, why this fiery trial? How strange. Help us to say we think it not strange, beloved. Regularly pray for your elders. Number two, eagerly await the return of Christ. There's one thing I didn't mention about 1 Peter. If I had to sum it up another way, I would say eschatology informs ethics. Like, that's how I would sum up 1 Peter in three words. Eschatology, the study of end times, the return of Christ, informs ethics now. Because so much of what Peter does is, look where we're going. When the chief shepherd comes, when he breaks the sky, when he makes all things right, when he raises the dead, with one eye there, go and live your life here. So eagerly await the return of Christ. And number three, humbly resolve to suffer like Jesus. Don't let the fear of man cause you to forget the goodness of God. The book of Proverbs tells us very clearly, the fear of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. And finally, 
It behooves me. If you're here today and, and you know, you know coming in and you know sitting here now, I'm, you're not a Christian. Well, first of all, I'm glad you're here. Very glad you're here. Maybe you came in wrestling. Maybe the way things are right now, because the dumpster fire that is 2020, maybe you thought, I'm, I'm just going to go to church. I don't believe it, but I'm just going to go somewhere because maybe you heard it as a kid. Maybe you got a friend. I don't know. Maybe you logged online just by happenstance and, and you hung in there. But if you know I'm not a Christian, I just in love and humbly want to take you to verse 5 before we close. And it says at the end of verse 5, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It is a dreadful thing, my friend, to be opposed by a God who creates planets with a word. But it is a humbling, joy-giving, life-sustaining reality for that same God, that same judge, to declare you not guilty because of faith in his perfect sacrifice when he gave his son to take the wrath you deserve and to live the life you couldn't live. And so I pray that you would, even now, as we close our service, come to him in humility. Say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And say, Lord, I, I don't know how I ended up here. My life is marked by fear for a million reasons, but I realize that I should be afraid to be opposed by a holy God. That's the ultimate fear. And if you can resolve that, then maybe these other fears will come into their proper place. Would you give me grace as I humble myself before you and confess that I'm a sinner and that Jesus Christ died to save me? Don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't limp between two opinions, beloved. You're not guaranteed what tomorrow will bring or if it will come. Come today while grace is offered in Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The leaders of this world will turn to ash, and yet his throne and his dominion is an everlasting one. Store up for yourself treasure in heaven, not in this place. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for my friends and their hunger for the word. Thank you for Brother Jason and his proper exhortation to be salt and light. And just when we might be thinking, I, I don't want to go and make contact with the culture. I don't want to leave my house. Here comes Peter, a fallible man and one who knows the taste of faithlessness. And like a good shepherd, he puts his arm around us, reminds us that you are sovereign, that our salvation is secure, and that our home and our inheritance are incorruptible and calls us to go. Lord, your word is sufficient. May we be marked by a Christ-centered, God-dependent, one-another-loving humility that makes a 2020 culture stand up and ask, give us a reason for the hope that you have. And may the response be Jesus and his name, amen.